We're going to go to prayer in just a couple minutes. Immediately following prayer, we're going to watch a short four-minute video this morning. Uh, We'll take the offering during that time. This video is all pictures that were taken by one of our missionaries, Eric Mock. Eric is the executive vice president of ministry operations for Slavic Gospel Association. He is in and out of Russia, Belarus, Ukraine, these nations. He's in Tajikistan and all those places um, in the former Soviet Union. Of course, with the war, he's been back and forth into Ukraine quite a bit. In the last months, they're doing um, a lot of humanitarian relief, a lot of work among the churches. Um, He just left. He's an amazing man. God, God gives that guy just holy boldness. He's been in Belarus for the last weeks, preaching in the churches in Belarus. And um, so he's trying to keep the church um, during this time of turmoil and tension from turning on itself in that region, um, because, of course, Belarus and Ukraine are at odds, with, and, and Russia there as well. But he was, we were in communication this week, and they have served... SGA, and of course we've been a part of raising funds for this and helping to administer it, but they've served 7.3 million meals in the last six weeks or six months in Ukraine. Um, they, they're bringing in 140 ton of aid per month into Ukraine in order to help alleviate the suffering that is there. You'll just see in this video, as he's been traveling around the country, he's been in places that the devastation is unbelievable. It's just total devastation. And so this is just a bunch of pictures that he has taken that show not only the devastation of the war, but also show the Christian camps where he's been, uh, the works that they're doing there, the church and how the church is thriving, baptisms, just a lot of different things going on. And I'm going to talk about a little bit in the worship service as well. We were talking this week, and, and um, he is extending to us the opportunity to go and uh, to serve alongside SGA there with a mission team in the spring. And so we're going to be giving you more information on this. Um, this will be because of various things, not only with the war, but also because of accommodations, accommodating people, this will be a men-only trip. Not that ladies and, and young people could not profit in many ways by being involved in this, but because of safety and also because of accommodations um, and, and some of the hardships that are going on there. It will be a men-only trip. have to have a visa. Um, I want you to pray about it. We're going to be planning towards this in the spring uh, to go to send a team to go to Ukraine to help with the humanitarian relief and the work in the churches. So we'll give you more information on that as well. I'll talk about it a little bit in the worship service in, in the message. Um, as we go to prayer, I also want to mention uh, a man that Laurel talked to me about. There's a family named the Jessen family that is in her homeschool co-op. And Daniel was in a uh, just a massive uh, motorcycle accident yesterday. He's in Idaho Falls with huge trauma, huge injuries. His wife and child, obviously, 
a lot of turmoil. So as we pray today, let's really pray for Daniel. Let's pray for um, the daughter, Abby, who is about 12, and then Jennifer, uh, the, the wife as well. Let's try to support them as a church any way that we can during this time. I also mentioned, I'll just do this real quickly, I also mentioned before that we were really hopeful to have Andrew and Noreen Brunson come and be with us this fall. Andrew was, they really wanted to come, but they were um, providentially hindered. I was talking about hindrances um, while they were overseas in Turkey and uh, because of travel and and other things with their schedule. They're not going to be able to be with us now this fall, so Lord willing, we'll still be able to get them here. Um, when that opportunity arises. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we come today to you. Uh, we lift up before you our brothers and sisters who are in the lands of Asia and Europe, uh, Russia, Slavic areas. Lord, we think of your church which transcends international borders. And Lord, we pray that even in this conflict and in this turmoil, your church would continue to love and to minister to those that you bring to them. Lord, I pray that you would save many in the land of Ukraine. That, Lord, you would reach into the lives of soldiers who are, uh, many of them, probably going to lose lives or be injured. Lord, both Russian and Ukrainian. We pray for the church in Belarus. Uh, We pray that, Lord, you would prosper it that, Lord, this time of conflict would not diminish the power of the gospel in any way. We know that it won't. We know that your gospel is the power of God to salvation. We just pray that, Lord, you would help your church to be bold and confident in those days, these days, in those lands. Thank you for, for Eric and his willingness to travel, to be in many of these places that are very dangerous. We pray that you would just protect him. And um, that, Lord, you would give him your grace. Lord, I pray for this one, Daniel, that was injured yesterday so in such a, such a difficult way. Lord, the head trauma and other things from this motorcycle accident. Let's pray the doctors would have wisdom. Pray for his wife, his, his child. Lord, I pray that you would comfort them. Lord, I don't know where they are exactly in the relationship to you. I pray that, Lord, this circumstance would not embitter them. I pray that they would turn to you, that they would, Lord, place their faith and trust in you. I pray for healing, for restoration. I know it would be a long journey and a long road. But we lift him before you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If we could have the lights, we'll watch this video. I was sure by now, God, you would have reached down. And wiped our tears away Stepped in and saved the day But once again I say amen And it's still raining But as the thunder rolls I bear 
Romans chapter 15. We're at the end of this chapter, beginning in verse 30, going to verse 33. A lot of material in these three verses. I was going to preach to them, uh, pre- preach to you on them for just one week, but I just couldn't quite get through them in my notes. So we're going to be back in chapter 15 again next week and finish up the chapter. But I want you to notice what he says. He says, I appeal to you, brothers. I appeal to you. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ, by the love of the Spirit, that you would strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered, number one, from unbelievers in Judea. Number two, that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. Number three, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that, Lord, as we are reminded in these verses of the Apostle Paul's appeal to the church at Rome, Lord, as we study this together, that, Lord, we would understand the importance of prayer. Father, I must confess before you in the church that My prayers, my prayer life is not what it should be. I pray that, Lord, you would help me, Father, to to, to pray more effectively and more fervently. I pray that, Father, you would help us as a church, that we would devote ourselves for the purpose of prayer. Help us, Father, to see how that in your sovereignty, under your sovereignty, you have ordained that your church would go forward on its knees. Help us to see that prayer is pivotal to the accomplishment of what you desire. Oh, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would give us that grace. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are in Romans chapter 15 and verse 30 to 33, finishing up this chapter. This section began in chapter 15 in verse 14 when Paul told the church, I myself am satisfied about you brothers. And then in this chapter, in the rest of the chapter, We've been looking at the purpose and the priorities, the planning of the Apostle Paul as he is thinking about his next step in the propagation of the gospel and taking the gospel to the uttermost parts of the world. The Apostle Paul says to the church, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm taking an offering, a contribution from the churches of Macedonia and Achaia. 
And I'm going to go there and I'm going to present this to the believers, those poor saints in Jerusalem, those people are, who, who are suffering. And then I'm going to come and see you in the will of God. And then I want you to send me to Spain. We saw, we already studied how all this plays out in Acts chapter 20 through chapter 28. When the Paul, Apostle Paul actually does get to Jerusalem, he is arrested um, and um, ends up appealing to Caesar. Finally gets to Caesar in imprisonment. And from that imprisonment, much of the New Testament, the prison epistles, are written during that period of time. But these three verses are in so many ways a summation of everything we have studied in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 116 gives basically the book of Romans in a nutshell. Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. When we get to this section, we then see something. Because the Apostle Paul honestly and totally believes what he has written, He is willing to put everything on the line for that message. Jerusalem and Rome, both of those locations are hotbeds of opposition to the gospel. He is not, when he goes to Jerusalem, he is not going somewhere where everybody in power and all the elites, all the governing entities of Judea are jumping up and down for joy, happy that Paul is coming to preach in the name of Jesus. Everywhere Paul is going, he is being told, Paul, chains and imprisonment await you. And he says, I'm going. And then he's going to go to Rome. And what I want us to think about, and we'll come back to this at the conclusion of the message, is because the Apostle Paul truly believes that the gospel is true, eternity is long, he is willing to take any risk so people hear. That's really the summation of this whole letter. Notice with me what happens in these verses. He says, I appeal to you brothers. Now, this is kind of where we're going as we study this. Paul appeals to the church. I don't know about you, there's not a day that goes by that I don't check my PO box, that I don't have some kind of appeal. It's from some entity out there wanting my money, usually, right? 
You know, they're appealing to us. Give me your money and we'll save the world or we'll save America. There's all these appeals. We get appeals everywhere. People wanting something from us, desiring for us to participate. Most of the time we look at them and they, they go in the garbage box, right? Because maybe we don't know who they are or we just get so many and we get sick and tired of it. But here the Apostle Paul is making an appeal to the church. What does Paul appeal to the church for? Pray for me. In the end, when the Apostle Paul is saying, you know, what can you do to help me? Paul's not really looking for money. Paul's not looking for anything from these people except what? Pray for me. Pray for me. That tells me there again that the Apostle Paul truly believes that prayer is powerful. That when the church prays, when the church lifts up someone else in the name of Jesus, heaven listens. So Paul's appeal is this. Strive together in prayer for me. That is Paul's appeal. I want you to also notice this morning the solemn nature of Paul's appeal. He invokes specific acts, aspects of the Trinity in his appeal. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, pray to God the Father for me. So you see here, all three persons within the Trinity. And in a very specific way, in a very solemn way, he invokes aspects of the Trinitarian nature and personhood in this solemn appeal to the church to pray. And we'll look at that this morning. And then we're also going to talk about the content of the prayers that Paul requests. You know, what is Paul asking for? He asks, first of all, pray that God delivers me from the unbelievers in Judea. And then he pray, he says, pray for me that my service to the church in Jerusalem will be acceptable, that it'll be pleasing. And then he says, pray with me or for me that I can come with joy within the will of God and be refreshed by you there in Rome. So there are three aspects of this prayer that Paul is asking them to do. When you ask somebody to pray for you, what do you ask for? Notice what Paul is praying for. He says, pray that God would deliver me, that he would deliver me from the unbelievers in Judea. He says, pray that my service will be acceptable. And then he says, pray that I can come with joy in God's word. Let's talk about this first thing. Notice with, with me what he says in chapter 15, in verse 30, when he says this, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ, by the love of the Spirit, that you strive, notice the word strive, together with me in your prayers. Notice what he says, I appeal to you, brothers, that you strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. That is an interesting word. It is one Greek word, soon agonizomai. Give me a second. I forgot to do this. I forgot to turn on my pen. I like to use my pen. Okay, yeah, it's working. Soon 
agonizomai. This is two words, and I'm going to explain them to you. Soon is a prefix. You know what prefixes are from grammar. This is the root word. It is a verb. Soon agonizomai. Strive together. Strive together. In that word, two things are implied. Number one is this. Prayer is a conflict. Prayer is a conflict. The root word agonizomai, and we'll look at that in a minute, is a Greek word which means war. Prayer is a conflict. Secondly, notice this. Powerful prayer is a joint effort, not just a closet endeavor. In Matthew chapter 6, we are told what? By Jesus. When you pray, do what? Go into your closet, pray to your Father who sees in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And he tells us there in Matthew 6, don't be like the hypocrites who like to pray in front of people to be seen by men. And Jesus is teaching us something there very specific about prayer and the kind of prayer that God hears. But I do want you not to take Matthew chapter 6 and take it out of the context of the rest of the Bible. It is important that we pray in our closet. But it is also important that we pray together. That is the word soon. It is a prefix which just means together. So what he is saying there in that word, a soon agonizomai, that we strive together. God is, Paul is telling us, please pray together for me to God. In Acts chapter 4, verse 24, very interesting, the apostles have been taken in by the Sanhedrin. They have been threatened. They have been told, do not speak anymore in the name of Jesus. They are released. They come to their friends. And it tells us in the text they reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. So they come back to the church. They tell the church, we were told we are not to speak in the name of Jesus anymore. How does the church respond? When they heard it, they lifted their voices, notice this, together to God. And they said, Sovereign Lord, give us boldness. At the conclusion of that chapter, it says this, after they together had prayed, the place in which they were gathered was shaken. These men are threatened. They are said, don't speak anymore in the name of Jesus. If you do, you're going to be in trouble with us. They go back to the church. They say, this is what we were told. The church gets on its knees before God, and together they pray. And God shakes the place where they are gathered. It's interesting, in Acts chapter 12, Peter was kept in prison. James has just lost his head. He's the first martyr. James, the brother of John. 
Not the first martyr, the first of the apostles to be martyred. Stephen was the first martyr. They put Peter in prison, intending to martyr to kill him as well. So Peter is kept in prison, but... Notice that word, but, that's a glorious word. Man is intending to kill him. He is kept in prison, but what happens? The church is planning on how to break him out? No, what do they do? Prayer was being made earnestly to God for him by the church. And it tells us in the text, they were gathered together at the home of Mary, the mother of Mark, and many are praying. What happens in answer to their prayer? An angel goes to Peter in prison, wakes him up as he is asleep, says, come on, let's go. They take him, and the angel takes him out of prison. He is set free. He goes to the church that is gathered in the house of Mary, and he says, look what God has done in answer to your prayer. They were praying together. I want us to consider some things about prayer for a minute this morning as we look at this. Prayer is communion. Prayer is, maybe I'd use another word here too. It's like worship. That's a wonderful part of prayer, isn't it? When we commune with God, you meet with the Lord and you sense His presence and His presence is very real and His presence is very sweet and we worship Him Prayer is communion. But let's also think about this text. Prayer is also conflict. Have you ever noticed that every time you get on your knees to pray, a fly starts buzzing in your hair or something? Or a miller, you know, or some other thing. All of a sudden happens, the phone rings. Your mind is going 10 million other places temptations assault you, things that you have never thought before all of a sudden are in your brain. When? When you pray. Prayer is conflict. Prayer is communion, but prayer is also conflict. You remember the movie? How many of you have seen the movie? If you haven't seen it, it's a great movie, isn't it? The War Room. Have you seen that movie that depicts this very thing? That when you go into your your closet and you pray, where the church is gathered to pray, it is a war. It is a conflict. We need to think about it in those time in in those terms. He says, "Strive, strive together with me in your prayers for God." It is a wrestling. It is a wrestling. Many times we fall asleep in prayer, sad to say. We're like the apostles in the garden. Jesus is wrestling. Jesus is in agony. Everybody else is asleep. But when we pray, when we truly are praying, it is a wrestling. We are wrestling against spiritual darkness. In Ephesians chapter 6, it tells you, you don't wrestle against flesh and blood. You wrestle against what? Spiritual wickedness in high places. When do we wrestle that way? When we pray. It is also a wrestling with my own flesh. My own desires. It's when I'm on my knees and I'm praying that God is putting his finger on areas in my life and he's telling me, Tim, I want control of that. And that's where that wrestling happens. And so... 
There is a wrestling against spiritual darkness. There is a wrestling with my own flesh and its desires. There is a wrestling with God. God is our friend and God loves us. But he is our Lord. And it is when we pray, it is when we seek him in prayer that we come to terms with that. This is like Jacob with God at the river Jabbok. You remember the story. And he wrestles all night with the angel of the Lord. Jacob says to him, the angel of the Lord says, let me go, it's time for me to leave. What did Jacob say? I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he says, okay, I'll bless you, but I'm going to touch you, and you're going to limp. But he changes his name from Jacob, a deceiver, to Israel. Prince with God. Prayer. Prayer is a wrestling. It is agony. That's the word. You could see the English word agony in the word agonizomai. This word is used in various places in the New Testament. 1 Timothy chapter 6, he says, fight the good fight of faith. Fight the good fight of faith. That is the word that we see in this text. In 2 Timothy 4, 7, Paul says at the end of his life, I have agonied the good agony. I have agonized this good fight. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, he says, let us run the race. The race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus. This again is this word for an agony. And what he is saying here is prayer is a conflict. Prayer is a contest. Prayer is a war. It is a wrestling in spiritual places. You see this in Luke chapter 22, verse 44. Jesus is in the garden. Jesus knows that what's going to happen tomorrow. He's going to die for our sin. I would submit to you, he's not afraid to die. Many men have died and many men have known they were going to die the next day. Many men have been led to their execution knowing their life is over. There is an added dimension to Jesus' agony. The added dimension is Jesus, who knew no sin, was made sin for us. And all of the sin of all of time and of Adam and humanity is being placed upon him. And he says to his father in prayer, Father, if there is any other way... Not my will, yours. Amen. Not my will, yours. But it tells us in the text he was what? Being in agony. Oops. <laughs> he prayed. More earnestly. His sweat was becoming like great drops of blood and it was falling to the ground. He was in agony. He was in conflict. Paul mentions this in Colossians 4.12. He is talking about the man who has come to him from the church at Colossae. His name is Epaphras. He is one of them. He is a servant of the Lord. He is a minister of the Lord. He greets them in this letter. 
But Paul says of Epaphras, he is always struggling on behalf of you in his prayers. And this is what Epaphras is praying for the church, the church of Colossae, whom he has served. He is praying for them that they would be mature, that they would be fully assured in the will of God. And then he says this, I bear him witness, he has worked hard for you, as well as those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Notice there's two things about prayer. Prayer is struggling, it is agonizomai, it is conflict, and number two, prayer is hard work. I'll tell you what, I know what it's like to work hard. I've done a lot of hard physical labor in my work, in my life. Now, I've worked on ranches, I picked up hay, I know what hard work is. But I will tell you, it is much more draining, isn't it, to spend an hour on your knees than it is to spend an hour picking up hay. Picking up hay will drain you physically. Getting on your knees before God and getting in conflict for others in a prayer closet is hard work. I remember when I was young in the ministry and I was working at Redcliffe Bible Camp and Pastor Phil Tubbs was alive at the time. And um, we were doing camps and we were working hard, serving in the camp, and we were cutting firewood one day on an off day. And I remember him looking to me and saying, he said, man, I would much rather cut firewood than deal with people's problems. And it's true. Spiritual endeavors in prayer are labor. It is a work. And so Epaphras is struggling and he is working hard for the church in prayer. In prayer. Let's go on. Let's consider the solemn nature of this appeal. We see here he prays based on Jesus' lordship and based on the Spirit's love. Just notice the text. It says it right in the text. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit. Those two things he mentions specifically. Why does he mention them? Number one, he mentions the lordship of Jesus. Why does he mention that? Since Jesus is Lord, he can do anything. Since he is reminding them of this, Jesus is Lord. When I go to Jerusalem and I am in harm's way, it's not like those people who want to put me in prison suddenly got around the lordship of Jesus. They can only act, they can only do to me what the Lord allows them to do. Satan cannot touch me. And so he is reminding the church that when we pray, we are to appeal to the lordship of Jesus. Think about how many times we just kind of, without even thinking, we say, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ. But think about what we're saying. His personal name is what? Jesus. That's his personal name. That's like, my name is Tim. He is Jesus. 
Christ is a title. He is the what? Messiah. He is the anointed one. He is the fulfillment of all of the prophecies of the Old Testament. It is his title. So he is Jesus, who is the Christ. And he is who? Lord. He is Lord of lords and King of kings. Think about how what we're saying when we say that. He is the Lord over all lords. And he is the king over all kings. So we pray and we appeal to the lordship of Jesus and then based on the Spirit's love. Romans 5 tells us that it is the Spirit who pours out the love of God within our heart. And in Galatians chapter 5, we are reminded that it is the fruit of the Spirit, which is love. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering. And so he appeals to the sol- to, to this aspects of the Trinity. Let's consider the content of the prayer as we move along. Number one, essentially he says, pray for this. Pray that God would bind the opposition and that he would bless the distribution. Pray that God would bind those who are in opposition and he will bless our ministry. That is what he is asking them to pray for. So he says, deliver, that we would be delivered from unbelieving Jews and that we would have acceptable service to the saints. Let's consider these. He says, deliver. There are cinnamons, cinnamons. There are cinnamon out there too. I like cinnamon toast. How about you? Synonyms for this word in the New Testament. One is the word to save. It's a Greek word, sozo. It's not this word. It's a different word. It is the word to deliver. It is probably best understood with an English word. It'd be like the word to rescue, to come to the rescue of. Someone is in peril. Someone is in danger. And to come to them and to rescue them out of it. We think about rescue operations that that military people uh, go on in order to save people who have been taken hostage. And so this is that kind of word. He says, pray that the Lord rescues me from the unbelievers in Judea. Now, when we think about this, we are also told in Matthew chapter 6 that every time we pray, we are to pray what? In the Lord's prayer. Deliver me. Deliver us. From who? The evil one. Deliver us from the evil one. So we see in the Lord's Prayer this very same kind of teaching. Paul says that I may be delivered from unbelievers in Judea. And in Matthew 6, Jesus has said to us that we are always to pray, deliver us from the evil one. In Colossians 1.13, we find that the Lord has delivered us from the power of darkness. He has transferred us into the kingdom of his son. Let's consider these unbelievers in Judea. He says, pray that I would be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. This is important we think about for a minute when we think about unbelief. Wrong way. Unbelief, that word, it is not a passive term in the Bible. Think about the difference between these two words. Misinformation and disinformation. If I am misinformed or I misinform someone else, 
that word does not imply any sense of, like, intentionality. I just was misinformed, and I misinformed you. But when we talk about disinformation, we are talking about what? We are talking about evil plans where somebody intentionally deceives. Disinformation. So when you hear disinformation and misinformation, don't just think wrongly about those words. When someone is misinformed, it's unintentional. When someone is disinformed or disinforms us, it is a malicious thing. That is the way we should understand the concept that we are talking about here. When we talk about unbelief, the better way of having a prefix is disbelieving. When Paul says here, pray for me that I am delivered from these people in Judea, he is not talking about people who have never heard the name of Jesus. He is not talking about people who are neutral to the name of Jesus. He is talking about who? People who are disbelieving in Jesus. Now, what does that mean? In Acts 14, Paul is on his missionary journey. There are Jews, and this is the word, disbelieve, who refused to believe. They hear the name of Jesus... They are shown by Paul how Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. And they see all that, and what do they do? They do not receive it. They do what to it? They refuse to believe it. In other words, they do what with it? They disbelieve it. They disbelieve it. And they stir up and they poison the mind of the Gentiles against the brothers. And then persecution comes the way of Paul. And it comes from who? These Jews who refused to believe it. In Acts 19, he enters into the synagogue. The synagogue is a Jewish place of worship. While he's in the synagogue, he speaks boldly over a period of three months. He is engaging in discussion. He is trying to persuade them of all the things of the kingdom of God, but what happens to some of them? They are hardened, and they, notice this, would not believe. They, same word, disbelieve. They disbelieve. And they slander the way in front of the crowd, and so he withdraws from them and meets separately with the disciples, conducting discussions every day, in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. There were people who disbelieved. Now let's consider this. I would submit to you that in our community and in our world, there are categories of people who don't know Jesus. We call them lost. That's kind of lingo in Christian you know, ease, isn't it? We say they're lost. People say, what am I lost from? You know, or we say they're unsaved. There are categories of people who do not believe. It's important we know this. There are some people who are unreached because they have never been enlightened. Now, I didn't say they are unreached because they never heard. 
Some people have heard with this, but they've never been enlightened by the Spirit of God. They've heard the message. They know Jesus died, all this stuff. But the Spirit of God never really touched their heart. They're unreached. They're not saved. But they've never been enlightened by the Spirit. There's some people that fall in that category. There's some people who are uninterested and really don't care. I'd say that's most of humanity. They're just happy to live their life and do their thing. They're not against us. They're kind of ambivalent. If you want to do that Jesus thing, that works for you, that's okay. You know, that's just who they are. They don't know the Lord. They know you do, and they really don't care. But there is a third category, and that is the person that Paul is talking about in this text. This third category is the disbelieving who have willfully rejected and actively oppose. Paul is saying, pray for me that they cannot touch me. Now, what's interesting, there's always been a lot of number one and two in America. There hasn't been a lot of number three. But we are living in a day and age where this third category, this one this group of people who have heard of Jesus and they know what you believe, they know what Jesus stands for, and they have willfully rejected it, and because they have willfully rejected it, they are not neutral to it. They are now actively opposing it. This category, for the first time in American history, is growing exponentially. We need to pray that God would deliver his church from that category. I got a text from a good friend. used to be a member of this church. And um, he left our church. He was involved in a lot of counseling in our church. He went to work for the state of Wyoming in the Governor Meade's um, administration, worked for Governor Meade for some time. And then from there, he ended up going to Missouri, worked in the administration of the Governor of Missouri. Now he's out in another really wonderful part of the Bible Belt called Seattle. (laughs) Running a counseling clinic. Gay pride and all that stuff. And one of his employees had the brilliance of mind to run a big post about how great LGBT stuff was. And he called his employees in, praise the Lord for this man to have this guts, this guts, more guts than you can hang on a fence. And he said to his employees, we will not celebrate sin. And Seattle has not taken it happy that he said that. We need to pray for him. That God would deliver him from what? Not just people who are ambivalent, people who are what? Actively opposing and actively against what we believe. This is what Paul is saying that we should pray for. There are people in this country who hate the message we preach. They hate it. And we need to pray that God would bind them and render them impotent. He prays for acceptable service. There's a debt that is owed. 
There's a pleasing sacrifice to bring. As we close, you know, the Apostle Paul was willing to take tremendous risk. He's going to go to Jerusalem where he knows it's not neutral, it's not ambivalent. Oh, yes, there are many Christians there, but it is the hotbed, it is the seat of opposition to Jesus. And he's going to go there. When he gets there, he goes down into the temple. A mob, I've never been in like a mob situation. I can't imagine what that's like. When this mob descends upon him, is ripping his clothes off him, trying to kill him, and the Roman soldiers come and deliver him from the unbelievers in Judea. God answered their prayer. It is not the way Paul foresaw. Paul is thinking, deliver me from the unbelievers in Jerusalem. Let me go there and just have a happy time and get on a boat and go to Rome. He goes into the temple and he is getting beat up. He is on the verge of being killed and the Roman soldiers are used by the Spirit of God to come and deliver him. He is taken, he appeals to Caesar. All of that that we see happen in the book of Acts is an answer to the prayers that these people are praying, that God would deliver them. A willing, a willingness to risk it all for Jesus. Man. I have a little notebook that I kind of keep my prayer thoughts in, carry it within my pocket. Middle of this week, as I was after speaking with Steve Corsi about what's going on in Seattle, I just wrote myself a note. Am I really willing to speak for Jesus when it will cost me everything? Am I willing? And then I'm doing emails with Eric Mock, and we're talking a little bit, and he says, I haven't had any churches associated with SGA send a group yet. How about you guys? How about I just pray? You know, how about I just stay home? Am I really willing to risk it? Am I willing, because I believe, do I really believe that Jesus and the gospel is worth everything? Is he worthy? Is he worth it? To the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul truly believed what he preached. And because he did, he was willing to take any risk. To place himself in any danger. I read in The Voice of the Martyrs, I don't know if you see their thing, and I'm going to shut up and close, about Chinese Christians. In China right now, it is illegal to tell your children about Jesus. Jesus. 
it's illegal. In America, it's getting illegal in many places to talk about sin. It's getting illegal. Are we willing to call it what it is? It's easy to read the voice of the martyrs and Ruha, the Christians who are there, because they're standing up for Jesus. And it's costly. But are we really willing? I mean, really willing when people may think you're an oddball to say what the Bible says? Or when people may come to you and say, you do that, you're going to lose your job. And we shouldn't think that's far-fetched. You will lose your job for saying certain things. And all we got to do is what? Oh, I still love Jesus and I'll stand for Jesus. I just won't say anything. I don't think the Apostle Paul would think that was what we should do in response to disbelief in America. I think the Apostle Paul would say we should confront it. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, it's so easy to talk big and to talk brave and to talk courageous kind of get in our echo chambers of Christian people or around Christian people, kind of like the Apostle Peter who was like, I'd never deny you, Lord, but when push comes to shove, it's pretty hard. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would give to us the courage You would give to us the words. And Father, you would give to us the endurance. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.